Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. We thank our sponsor, Summit Therapeutics, for making this special series possible. Summit Therapeutics is a leader in antibiotic innovation and has a clear strategy through new science and philosophy. They are creating new opportunities to become the standard of care for serious infectious diseases. To learn more, please visit their website, www.summitplc.com. This series consists of the keynote speakers from the 8th Annual International C. diff conference and health expo. We hope you will enjoy today's show. And it's such a delight to be part of this foundation. And before we get started today, um, Nancy asked me to cover a little bit about really what the foundation is about. Uh, and Nancy, Nancy Corella is the, the foundress and really kind of the, the locomotive that, that pulls this, this wonderful organization moving forward and it grows each year. So the mission of the foundation is that it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization that Nancy established in 2012, and it's comprised of 100% volunteer professionals, all dedicated to supporting public health through education and advocacy for C. difficile infection, including prevention, clinical trials, treatments, environmental safety, as well as support worldwide. And each year, Nancy takes on a major project. It's really quite wonderful and remarkable. And each year, it's applicable to kind of what's happening in the C. diff world. And this year, just like every other year, she did something that was, I thought, quite, quite impressive. She created an app for the C. diff Foundation for patients to access understandable information about their disease state. So you say, well, why would you create an app this year? And the answer has to do with the COVID-19 pandemic really the thing that's taken over most of our lives during this year. Unfortunately, a lot of our patients are unable to access the internet, perhaps have lost their job, et cetera. They, all that they have are their telephones, and a lot of individuals now have smartphones. And her thought was, let's create an application that patients can access even with minimal internet access or with just their phone that provides a lot of information and allows the global CDF community to really engage with one another. And it's really wonderful. It's available through the Android application as well as the App Store through Apple. Um, and I'd advise you individually to, to download this app, but also advise your patients to download this app. Nancy also hosts the CDF Radio Foundation, CDF Spores, and more. She now has completed its impressive season five, over 275 archived episodes. They are recorded on Tuesday afternoons, but they are available for all of us. Uh, and you can go to cdifradio.com, reaches out to 30 countries, and the main sponsor for that is Clorox Healthcare. November is CDF Awareness Month. Uh, we wear our green in November. Uh, I'm wearing uh, a, my pin from the CETA Foundation for CETIF awareness, and uh, it's important also that we promote this just so that we promote education during this month. This is why the Foundation's conference annually is, is here during this month, um, but it allows patients also something to rally around. And we have to also acknowledge the state governors for recognizing CETIFACIL as a leading uh, life-threatening health-associated infection. And there were uh, five governors this year who, who led the charge with this, including the Arkansas governor, uh, William Asa Hutchinson, the Colorado governor, Jared Polis, Minnesota governor, Tim Waltz, the New Jersey governor, Bill Murphy, and the Pennsylvania governor, Tom Wolf. 
Now, as we shift towards the conference, we have so much great information that we're going to be covering today, but I advise everybody, go to the website where you registered. There's a lot of really useful information, specifically a lot of information about the speakers. There's going to be some slides from the speakers. Uh, there are already poster presentations on cutting-edge research as it relates to C. difficile infection, and quite a bit of information from our sponsors and some videos from our sponsors. Now, of course, this, this foundational conference wouldn't be possible without these sponsors, so I'd like to just take a moment to acknowledge them. We have our diamond sponsor, which is Serious Therapeutics. We have our gold sponsors, Fearing Pharmaceuticals, PDI, Be the Difference, Rebiotics, a fearing company, Summit Therapeutics, Vedanta Biosciences, our silver sponsors, Acia RX Pharmaceuticals, Clorox Healthcare, Tech Lab, and our bronze sponsors, Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, SafetyNet, Trinity Guardian. Now, the audio is being sponsored today by Summit Therapeutics. And Pfizer has also put forward an educational grant to support this foundational conference. And really, we're very thankful for this, for this funding to support this educational event. It's really a wonderful learning opportunity for all of us to participate in. Now, each year, Nancy also acknowledges a number of individuals who really made a difference with innovations in infection prevention. And this year, the foundation acknowledged three companies, Applied Silver, Intelligo Technologies, and Synexus wonderful work in these spaces. Of course, the conference wouldn't be possible without the speakers, and we have such a great panel today of dynamic, engaging, and cutting-edge speakers. We have clinicians, we have basic scientists, we have industry presenting fresh data, and I think also really importantly, and what makes this conference very different is we have patients. We have multiple angles on C. difficile that can present it in one place at one time. So we are very grateful for all the individuals for giving up a Saturday morning and participating in this for the betterment of education. And finally, I'll remind you, the poster presentations are available on cdiff2020.com. Now, hopefully, this will be real next year. Please save the date, November 4th and 5th. We're planning on Boston, Massachusetts, for this conference, it'll be our back to our hopefully two-day conference at the Hilton Boston Logan Airport Hotel. So this year we're doing the virtual thing. Hopefully next year we'll be able to do this in person once again. And with all that being said, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Paul Feuerstadt. I'm a clinical gastroenterologist from the greater New Haven area in Connecticut. I'm an assistant professor, a clinical professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine and an attending gastroenterologist at the PAX Gastro Center. I am absolutely delighted and honored to kick off this conference, and Nancy charged me with really performing a, a, a large task, which is giving an overview or a foundation for the CETA Foundation Conference. So let's start with some epidemiology, and it should come as no surprise to anybody who's listening to this call that back in 2013 and then again in 2019, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a threat level of urgent for C. difficile plainly stated, this is a true epidemic. And this is one study that was published in 2017 by Ma et al. It looked at the OptumRx database from 2001 to 2012, and there were a couple of important observations made during this time frame. Firstly, on the left-hand side, we see the incidence of C. difficile increased annually 42.7% over that time frame. That's pretty remarkable. However, the incidence of multiply recurrent C. difficile that increased 188.8%. 
What differentiated those who had a single recurrence from multiple recurrences? Older age, female gender, chronic corticosteroid use, antimicrobial use, PPI use, proton pump inhibitors, living in a skilled nursing facility, and chronic kidney disease. So those are factors that we as clinicians and practitioners really should be thinking about when we approach a patient with C. difficile. There were really two important elements that came from this study. Firstly, the incidence is increasing, but the refractory nature of this really remarkably increased. That 188.8%, these are the patients that are a challenge for us to, to treat and us to cure. This is some data from earlier this year from the Emerging Infections Program from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Within this program, they look at 10 counties throughout the United States and project the data from those 10 counties on a national level. Overall, within this study, they looked at 2011 and 2017, and they compared them. In 2011, 15,461 individuals were diagnosed with C. difficile across those 10 counties. In 2017, 15,512 individuals were diagnosed with C. difficile. When they projected those data on a national scale, in 2011, 476,400 individuals were estimated in 2011. However, in 2017, that estimate went down to 365,200. Now, when I quoted the absolute numbers, 15,461 in 2011 and 15,512 in 2017, one might say, well, wait a second, how are these projections so different? The answer lies in different diagnostic methods used during each time frame. In 2011, we predominantly used the enzyme-linked immunoassay, which detects the toxin of C. difficile, whereas in 2017, the PCR was used to diagnose, which detects the organism. The PCR is believed to overdiagnose C. difficile. As such, there was a correction factor in the estimate, and this is why we see that approximately 24% decrease in the incidence. So we should feel good. Through education like this conference, we are lowering the incidence of C. difficile. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Within this data set, they looked at healthcare-associated infection and community-associated infection. Healthcare-associated infection being defined as onset of symptoms greater than 72 hours after admission to the hospital or within 90 days of discharge. In 2011, the breakdown was about two-thirds healthcare, one-third community, but in 2017, it was much closer to 50-50. Why? Well, we're going to learn a lot more about this during this conference. Better infection control in the hospital, better antimicrobial stewardship, more aggressive treatment of patients, and better transitions of care. As we focus on those elements, we can see tangible differences in the incidence of infection and hopefully decrease that incidence and also treat these patients much more appropriately. Now, within this study, they also looked at rates of recurrence and in-hospital mortality. And I'm going to focus on the 2017 data because that's most applicable to where we are today in 2020. And we can see in 2017, recurrence rates in the community were 12.8% and recurrence rates in healthcare associated were 15.3%, a trend for higher recurrence rates in the healthcare-associated infection. And that trend for more severe infection with healthcare-associated infections was also seen with 30-day in-hospital mortality, 2.2% for community-associated, 7.1% for healthcare-associated. So once again, we're seeing healthcare-associated as more severe, but when we look at these trends, that severity seems to be decreasing and the incidence seems to be decreasing due to interventions that we're making. Whereas in the community, the trends seem to be somewhat level. So let's now shift gears and talk about the pathophysiology of C. difficile. And I'm going to remind everybody that C. difficile is a gram-positive 
spore-forming anaerobic rod. And there are two main phases of C. difficile infection, the spore phase and the vegetative phase. The vegetative phase is the phase that most of you probably thought about when you heard that this conference was going to occur. Because the vegetative phase is the phase that releases two toxins, toxin A and toxin B, that most commonly stimulates the diarrheal syndrome associated with C. difficile. The vegetative phase is susceptible to gastric acid and susceptible to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. So plainly stated, when it comes in contact with these things, it gets wiped out. Alternatively, the spore phase is a much more resistant phase. The spore phase is resistant to gastric acid and resistant to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. This is the phase that really explains the rapid spread of C. difficile infection. So how does this actually affect us? Classically, what happens is we swallow the spore phase. It's resistant to our gastric acid. It gets into our small bowel. Within our small bowel, there's a rapid conversion called germination. It converts to the vegetative phase, and the vegetative phase multiplies, divides, and multiplies some more as it really builds an army heading towards the colon. But as you heard in my introduction, I'm a gastroenterologist. And I really focused on the colon. I think the colon is a really smart organ, and it is, because the colon has its own defense system independent of the bloodborne defense system that protects it. And that defense system is something called colonization resistance or the microbiota. What classically weakens colonization resistance? Amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolones, and cephalosporins. We weaken that microbiota or that colonization resistance. We create an environment that's welcoming for the C. difficile, and the C. difficile can proliferate. It's really important to realize that C. difficile usually and most commonly causes diarrhea, but it can also cause constipation, ileus, and very rarely can cause the devastating complication of a megacolon. Now, like many things in science and medicine, the more you ask, the worse it gets. But I think it's important to present this concept of bile acids because there are a lot of switches that occur with this that can either activate C. difficile proliferation or inhibit it. And there will be discussions that loop this in throughout the conference. Basically, bile salts are present, we believe, for the most part, to digest fats. They help emulsify the fats, and they help in our digestive process. However, like I said, Bile salts also alter the milieu in the bowel and either switch up the likelihood of C. difficile proliferation or down. Bile salts emanate from cholesterol. They get synthesized into cholate or chenodeoxycholate, the primary bile salts. Those primary bile salts can get converted to secondary bile salts by an enzyme called 7-dehydroxylase. And it turns out 7-dehydroxylase is released by a bacteria called C. syndens. Cholate becomes deoxycholate, chenodeoxycholate becomes lithocholate. Well, as I alluded to before, in patients that have active C. difficile, we see a predominance of cholate, cholate favors conversion from the spore to the vegetative phase, and a depletion of C. syndens, therefore less of those secondary bile salts that act to inhibit the vegetative phase. So we can see these switches can actually play a significant role. Now let's focus a bit on the microbiota. And one thing that we talk about with the microbiota is something called fecal microbiota transplant. So we take stool from a healthy person and we put it into an unhealthy person. So I pose to the audience, well, what is stool? What are we transporting? Stool is comprised of water and electrolytes, fats, polysaccharides, proteins, undigested food, undigested pharmaceuticals that we've taken in, and microorganisms. 
And when we talk about the microbiota, there are several important words that we use, and we should understand what those are. Firstly, what is the microbiota itself? This is a group of microorganisms that live in an established environment or a confined space. We use microbiota and microbiome frequently interchangeably, but they are quite different. The microbiome is the genetic complement of all of those microorganisms together. Dysbiosis is a term that we use for a differentiation of the microbiota from what we perceive to be normal. And finally, the metabolome is something that we don't usually talk about specifically, but it's probably the most important element that we should be focusing on. The metabolome is the metabolic output that occurs as a result of all of those microorganisms. Plainly stated, how are those microorganisms and what they're putting forward and synthesizing interacting with our bodies and causing or preventing disease states? What constitutes the intestinal microbiome? A number of things, bacteria, archaea, fungi, viruses, and protozoa. And there are three important shifts that I like to think about when it comes to C. difficile infection and the microbiota. And the first comes from a landmark study that elucidates this shift called microbiota suppression. Within this study, 10 individuals were assessed. Three were healthy controls, no C. difficile, over 65, no oncologic diagnosis. Four had initial C. difficile infection, and three had recurrent C. difficile infection. And they compared the constituency of the microbiota, what was there, and the diversity of the microbiota, the variability of what was there, for no infection, initial infection, and initial infection, recurrent infection. When they compared no infection with initial infection, there were no statistically significant differences. However, when they compared initial infection with recurrent infection, there was a statistically significant depletion of the diversity. So there was less variability with the depletion of the bacteroidetes and the firmicutes. So there were really two important pearls that came from this study. When we treat C. difficile initially, we're really focused on treating the bacteria and eradicating the bacteria. And the microbiota is bent, but it's not completely broke. So it's much more likely that the microbiota will be able to replenish itself. However, once a patient gets to recurrence, we have to treat the bacteria, but also the microbiota is really broken and it has to regrow itself and reproliferate itself. So there's really two tasks in that circumstance. The second concept is something called collateral damage. And the collateral damage is the concept that treatments like metronidazole and vancomycin, yes, treat C. difficile, but also alter the microbiota. And I think that the best study that elucidates this is a study by two of our speakers today, Dr. Stu Johnson and Dr. Dale Girding. Did a study in 1992 looking at individuals who were colonized with C. difficile, meaning they had it in their system, but they didn't have active infection. Gave a group of them vancomycin, gave a group of them placebo, and then checked their stool two months later. Turns out the group that received vancomycin, 67% still had C. difficile within their system, whereas the group that received placebo, 11% had it in their system. Well, this is really counterintuitive. You might say, well, why is that the case? Vancomycin should have activity against C. difficile. But what we believe was being observed in this study was that the colonization resistance was being altered by the vancomycin in the, in the group that received that antimicrobial, whereas in the placebo group, the colonization resistance remained fortified. And the colonization resistance of the microbiota is the thing that gives C. difficile that knockout punch. So by altering that microbiota, the vancomycin weakened it, and therefore patients 
had persistent C. difficile within their system. The third concept is the concept of something called the window of vulnerability. And this is the time frame from the end of treatment of C. difficile to three months into the future when patients are at greatest risk for recurrence. And one study that elucidates this nicely is a retrospective study by Draconja et al. Draconja looked at 246 individuals who had C. difficile, 25% of them received an antimicrobial for another indication at the same time as their treatment of C. difficile, and 33% received antimicrobials in the three months subsequent to the treatment of C. difficile, and that antimicrobials for another indication. And then they looked at recurrence rates. The group that received no concomitant antimicrobials, 16%. Recurrence rates in the group that received antimicrobials for another indication at the same time as their treatment of C. difficile, that shot up to 31%. However, recurrence rates in the group that received antimicrobials within this window of vulnerability, that was 48%. Why? Because it's the colonization resistance that's giving C. difficile that knockout punch once we, fit, once we finish antimicrobial therapy. If that takes a hit from another antimicrobial, then we're much more likely to recur. And this is why individuals who receive narrow-spectrum antimicrobials like fidaxomycin that have minimal effect on the colonization resistance or individuals who receive a reinforcement of their colonization resistance with a fecal microbiota transplantation are much more likely or much less likely to get a recurrence, much more likely to be successful in their therapy. And then finally, in the last minute, one of the things that's always surprising is a lot of providers respond like this when they get a diagnosis of one of their patients with C. difficile. But what I'd like to say is, it's fairly basic. We really have limited therapies for C. difficile. They've grown, but we have limited therapies. And we can do two things. We can attack the bacteria, or we can support our immune system. We attack the bacteria through antimicrobials, metronidazole, vancomycin, and fidaxomycin. We can boost our immune system, our serologic immune system, with bezlotuximab, a fully humanized monoclonal antibody to toxin B, which we'll hear more about later, and fecal microbiota transplantation, which we, of course, also will hear extensively about later. We hope you are enjoying listening to the keynote speakers of the 8th Annual International Virtual C. diff Conference and Health Expo, sponsored by Summit Therapeutics. Learn more about how Summit Therapeutics is advancing innovative therapies. Visit the Summit Therapeutics website at summitplc.com. You are listening to C. diff Spores and More. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. So our next presenter um, is Courtney Jones. Courtney is the Associate Director, Marketing and Communications for Rebiotics Incorporated, a fearing company. And she's going to be talking to us about developing next-generation live microbiome-based therapeutics. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you very much for having me, and thank you to the CEDIS Foundation and to you, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Forrestad, for the privilege of joining the panel today. Um, good morning to everybody that got up bright and early to, to join the foundation in our discussion around CEDIS. Um, my name is Courtney, and I'm the Associate Director of Marketing and Communications for Rebiotics, and it's my pleasure to share with you our company's experience in developing a new way to potentially address CEDIS. Uh, using a next-generation microbiome-based therapeutic. 
Today I'll share with you some data collected across our company's development program and show you how the participants in our programs have really gone the extra mile to help understand exactly what it means to harness the power of the microbiome. But before I dive into the details of that, I'd just like to start out with the why. Why do we need to have some potentially new non-antibiotic ways to address CDI? And we're going to start with the reason that is near and dear to every single person's heart here, trying to help those that are impacted by C. diff infection. So Clostridioides difficile infection, or also known as C. diff or CDI, is a very serious illness that affects several hundred thousand people in the U.S. alone. And of those tens of thousands that Tens of thousands of them today will die as a direct result of the infection. And because of this, the CDC has labeled this infection as an urgent national health care threat. But for one reason or another, none of us in this room today will be surprised by those facts. We've either cared for someone who has had C. diff, or we've had the infection ourselves. And some of us have maybe even had the experience of, like my own family members, who have developed a recurrence of the disease. Like many across the world, my family were treated with antibiotics. And while antibiotics are arguably one of the most impactful developments in healthcare in the last century, they're also the primary reason why C. diff can return. And my family members in particular saw this firsthand. But why does this happen? Why does C. diff come back? And why do we see it return so frequently, particularly in people who have been treated by antibiotics? And the answer to this actually lies in the microbiome, which we've touched on a little bit already, but I'd like to go into a little bit more detail. Now, C. diff itself is not a great competitor as just an organism alone. It struggles to grow where other organisms already occupy the space. And a major factor of preventing C. diff infection is the gut microbiome and its diversity. So much like the Amazon rainforest, our gut is made up of microorganisms, metabolites, and bile acids, and other nutrients and components that, when they're all working together, doesn't even allow C. diff to proliferate. C. diff can't compete when this rainforest is intact, but if the rainforest of organisms in our gut is injured or disrupted, C. diff has the opportunity to thrive. So for those of you that are gardeners, this should come as no surprise. If our gut rainforest is, is injured, if our gut ecosystem is damaged and loses its ability to function, much like clear-cutting the rainforest, this leads to dysbiosis or this disruption and allows C. diff to grow and thrive, making health extremely difficult to reestablish. And interestingly, the treatment for C. diff is antibiotic, which often causes the damage in the first place. So we just said that our microbiome plays a major role in maintaining overall health, whether it's in our gut, on our skin, or somewhere in between. And we also know that the complexities can be disrupted by the current standard of care antibiotics, and then C. diff is good at taking the opportunity to grow in a, dis a disrupted gut microbiome rainforest. So this is when we need to ask ourselves a very important question. What if? What if we could find a different non-antibiotic approach to addressing C. diff? What would it take? And interestingly, this question has been asked for a long time as C. diff is the major problem, so we need to find a creative solution to actually solve it. So this question and the process of potentially using the microbiome is actually not a new story. Um, it's a fairly common practice in veterinary medicine, and it also started to enter into human clinical practice with a greater and greater frequency starting in 1958. 
And the general principle behind that of transferring the microbiome of a healthy person to a sick patient has shown promise over time. However, there are some major challenges with it. There are no standardized processes. Um, there's no way to tell if one dose is consistent to a next. And there wasn't really a standardized way to follow patients to ensure safety. And as it was not approved by the FDA, patients were severely limited in getting access to FMCs unless they had it themselves, or they had done it themselves in a DIY fashion, or it was done by a physician. In 2013, because of the increasing usage of, of FMCs, the US FDA indicated that the principle of using microbiomes as a therapy to treat or a preventive disease would be considered a new class of drug and would be called a live biotherapeutic product. These new drugs needed to be studied like any other medicine under an investigational new drug application or an IND, and that was strictly meant to protect patient safety before they could be approved for general use. And without approval, patients who needed them most would find accessing the microbiome-based therapies extremely difficult. So with this goal of accessibility and addressing CDIF in mind, that's what inspired Rebiotics to really get to work. So in 2011, we were founded on the idea that it is possible to harness the power of the microbiome to treat debilitating disease, with recurrent CDIF being the first disease to address. Our goal was to produce and standardize formulations that mimic the adult microbiome and the microbiota found there and to a standardized per-dose delivery that could break the cycle of recurrence. So really what this drove us to do was to create a, a drug development platform to allow us to do evaluation and uh, these clinical trials that were so important to understand the safety and efficacy of potentially using the microbiome. Under our platform, we ended up developing our our lead formulation, which is the investigational formulation called RBX2660, and its focus is on the recurrent C. diff infection. This formulation is a single-dose prepackaged uh, delivery that does not require a colonoscope or bowel prep to deliver. And I can tell you from personal experience at the bench trying to deliver and develop this product that hundreds of hours were put into de developing a standardized and quality-controlled process. Uh, it's critically important that this occurred because we needed to understand and have assurance that each dose was the same. And so when we went into clinical development, we could say that each project and each program could be compared. Um, it's really a labor of love at this point, um, and it took us several years to be able to get to the clinical stage. And as you can see, there are now three phase two trials and two phase three trials addressing uh, recurrent C. disinfections. So just to give you an idea of what this looks like, um, RBX2660 has been evaluated through uh, so many studies over the last eight years that it's encompassed nearly 1,000 patients, and each time the study has had the same foundation to ensure the data could be compared. This was all done under IND and under the oversight of the FDA, um, and within each study, everything was standardized. So participants would come in on standard of care antibiotics that would match whatever the standards were that their, their treating physician would normally follow. And this is really important uh, when we're looking forward in time. If these types of therapeutics were to be approved, it needs to fit into the usage that, that physicians would normally work with. And after, in the case of our clinical programs following a short washout period, participants would then receive RBX2660 
And then we would stay with that person for the entire course of the program, sometimes up to, to two years to monitor for safety, depending on the trial design. And as part of these programs, I'll share with you how the participants did go above and beyond to help us understand the impact of RBX 2660 beyond just for signing up to receive the treatment. But just briefly, I'd like to show you some of the things that we found from our trials. In this particular open-label study, um, we did follow participants out to two years. And what you can see here is that the, the majority of the people that received RBX 2060 were crunch-free at eight weeks. And that's just the clinical endpoint. But more importantly, we were able to follow folks at six months, 12 months, and 24 months. And we see that even after 24 months post-treatment, a significant number of the people that received RBX 2660 remained recurrence-free. These clinical data are extremely helpful to understand, but remember that this is a completely new arena of medicine, so we need to look beyond safety and efficacy. And this is where those participants step in. And so now I'd like to show you a little bit about what they've helped us understand beyond whether or not a microbiome-based therapeutics works. So throughout our program, we've asked participants to voluntarily submit stool samples over the course of their study participation. And because of their enthusiasm and dedication, we've actually learned more about the effects of RBX 2660 than just clinical outcomes. So what I'm showing you here are the results of analyzing microbiota samples of hundreds of them that have been collected from the participants over the course of our program. Each column represents one of the four major taxa that make up the adult microbiota. And as we move from left to right in each column, we can see that a shift in these microbiota occurs from pre to post treatment. What this shows us is that after receiving RBX 2660 in this particular study, a considerable change is seen in the microbial makeup of a participant's gut community, and that change stays. We can then directly connect these samples with clinical outcomes really driving forward our understanding of what it means to use a non-antibiotic therapeutic to potentially address CDI. It goes beyond this, though. As you've heard the two previous speakers uh, mention, the microbiome of the human does not just consist of organisms, but also the different metabolites and nutrients and waste products that also are accumulated over time. So from these patient samples, we've also been able to ask the question, well, what about metabolites? And what about bile acids? Those types of things that really drive that maintenance of the gut rainforest. And based on the participation and enthusiasm of our clinical participants, we've been able to do that assessment as well. So like assessing the changing population of organisms, we can also ask questions about the different micro microbiome components, thanks to the trial participants. And here we can see how bile acids, important in suppressing C. diff growth, or promoting it, depending on what kind they are, also change post-2660 delivery. This increase in secondary bile acids, as you can see here, also helps to suppress C. diff, which shows us that the functionality of the microbiota and the microbiome itself is really important to return to a quote-unquote normal status in order for patients to maintain health over time. We would not have learned this without our study participants. And we can see that this is fairly consistent over different studies as well. As long as the bile acids are returned to a normal status, we have the ability to maintain prevention of recurrence. 
So we blew through that relatively quickly, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, as the last slide of, of my presentation, of what does this all mean. So we know that C. diff is a deadly infection that impacts patients across the world, claiming way too many lives every year. My own family was impacted by this, so there has to be a different way to understand and treat this infection. We know that antibiotics are also the standard of care, but they're not always effective. And new and innovative ways to treat C. diff are needed to address, address such a high unmet need. History shows us that there is promise in using the microbiome to address CDI, but without an FDA-approved product, access to these patients will always be limited, and FDA approval cannot come without doing these critical clinical trials and understanding what's really underneath the hood of the microbiome. As our company um, and part of Sparing Pharmaceuticals now since 2018, we've set out to understand this potential uh, of the microbiome through our investigational live biotherapeutic product, RBS2660, and we're currently studying the safety and efficacy in our final phase three trial, as well as the changes in the microbiome through that are driven by the help and enthusiasm of our participants. And we, along with many others in the field, believe that these data are critical in truly understanding the power of the microbiome, particularly in the case of CDI. So hopefully one day, with the amount of data that has been collected, not just by Rebiotics, but others in the field, we will be able to produce something that will be accessible for C. diff patients and really change the course of the microbiome in the future to make sure that we can see an end to this deadly infection. So with that, I would like to thank you for your time this morning and for the invitation to speak. And I would also like to say a very special thank you to the staff and the study participants who made these last eight years' worth of research possible. And I hope that you enjoyed the rest of the conference. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, Courtney. That was a really, uh, really motivational um, talk, uh, talking, really focusing on what Rebiotics and uh, your company has developed over the last eight years and products that that uh, potentially we might see in clinical practice uh, with a potential FDA approval in the coming time. Um, so really, uh, just a nice summary of the microbiota, a nice summary of what was targeted with uh, RBX 2660 and some of the uh, some of the other products in the in the Rebiotics. Pipeline. So I appreciate that uh, that presentation. Um, it's really refreshing as we sort of move forward. We're seeing advances between um, Stu Johnson's talk with antimicrobials and now with your talk as well. And I know with each presentation, we're really going to be talking about some of these advances that we're going to see in clinical practice. Now, one of the nice elements about our conference is that we get multiple angles on things, and you've already seen that in the first hour. We've had a kind of an overview of C. difficile. We've had a discussion on the, the antimicrobials. We've had a discussion on the microbiota, one from industry, uh, one reviewing the literature, and one an overview. And now we're going to get a really insight in what I always call kind of a grounding moment where we hear from patients. What is it about the patient experience? Um, and most of us who are, who are participating on this call are being touched heavily by this infection, either personally through a family member or in our clinical practice or some combination of both. Um, so I'd like to really um, introduce two individuals providing their firsthand experience with C. difficile. Both have poignant stories about their journey with this devastating infection. Uh, Alba Mewfield and then Dale Skelly will follow her. Alba? Please, why don't you get started? Thank you so much. Yes, good morning. Um, 
Thank you, Paul, for, uh, and thank you, Nancy, and the CDIF Foundation for allowing me to have a voice during this conference and uh, share my testimony and my journey um, through C with my C. diff infection. Um, my journey with C. diff began in June of 2017. I was prescribed uh, multiple antibiotics, some which have a high risk for C. diff. Um, the last two antibiotics uh, I was prescribed by my um, primary care physician, and I did not need them. Um, they were for a viral infection, bronchitis. Um, when I presented with the symptoms, my family physician dismissed it as, quote, an infection or a virus. There was no discussion of testing or stool cultures or any kind of testing at all. And um, my intuition told me something was wrong. Um, I went to my gastro, uh, gastroenterologist at the time, and told them of the uh, antibiotic use. And the PA there said to me, um, I think you have C. diff. Um, I cringed. Uh, I knew of C. diff because I was tested for it while undergoing chemotherapy in the hospital in 2014. I have um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, and another autoimmune disease, ITP, which is immune thrombocytopenia, a platelet disorder, which requires um, a lot of steroids as well as the IBD. Um, patients with IBD have an increased risk of C. diff infections as well as patients using steroids. I was the perfect storm. Um, by the time the test came back positive, which took over four days, I was extremely sick. Um, I was initially treated with vancomycin, um, one, one course of vancomycin. Um, I've never been so sick in my life. Honestly, I had chemo in 2014 and was in the hospital for a month. and. Uh, did six weeks of chemo, you know, after the hospitalization, and I have never been so sick. Uh, I was vomiting. I was having diarrhea 15 to 20 times a day. Uh, I could not eat. Uh, I was extremely weak and fatigued. I, I lost 27 pounds in six weeks. Uh, about every three days or so, my husband was taking me to the emergency room where they would administer uh, fluids. And during the summer of 2017, I was admitted to the hospital four times and spent a total of 21 days um, in the hospital, not including all of the ER uh, trips. I did four rounds of vancomycin and failed the therapy and kept relapsing. Uh, no other therapy was offered by the, my GI doctor at the time, not bezlotuximab, not dipistid, nothing, just, just vancomycin. So after about four or five months um, and many hospitalizations, I did a lot of research on my own, and I found a physician who specializes in C. diff. Um, he prescribed to me fidoxamycin. Um, I finished the course of Dipicid, and in November, I relapsed again. Um, I was starting to lose hope. I was extremely frustrated, and I was still sick. Um, I was initially enrolled in a clinical trial at that time, but was excluded because of my history with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I needed to get a fecal transplant. Um, at that point, I, there was no option at that point. Um, 
I had the FMT in December of 2017, and my husband was the donor. Uh, it was performed via colonoscopy, and it saved my life. Um, but my journey with C. diff was not over. Um, I had reactive arthritis for about six months, dysbiosis of my microbiome. Um, I went to two functional medicine doctors, rheumatologists. I got a new primary uh, GI as well as the GI that was treating me for the C. diff. It took me about a year, almost a year, from the FMT to finally feeling better and recovering. Um, this illness changed my life. The, the physical, emotional, and financial burden was immense. The toll on my family was immense. Um, I had a post-traumatic stress disorder because of it. Um, there needs to be a lot more awareness regarding C. diff, and the medical community needs to address the risks of antibiotic therapy when prescribing antibiotics to patients. There's no discussion of what the risks are um, as getting C. diff infection. Um, I found the C. diff foundation after frantically looking for information on the internet when I was sick. Uh, it was a godsend. Uh, the site has a plethora of information, offering patients guidance, and I am forever grateful to the C. diff Foundation for their continued effort to raise awareness and offer patients information and hope. My wish is that the medical community, doctors, researchers, pharmaceutical companies, find new therapies and medications to prevent and cure this horrific infection before more lives are impacted by C. difficile infection. And um, I would like to thank all of you for listening to me and thank the C. diff Foundation for allowing me to have a voice today. And thank you to all the doctors and researchers on the panel today. Thank you for joining us today. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, clinical trials, protecting the gut microbiome, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections, prevention, and treatments, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org. Clinical Trials in Progress. Help them to help you to help others. We send out our well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.